And now another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 74 today, Sacred Mushroom Rituals uh, with Tom Lane. Uh, Tom is an author who recently wrote the book Sacred Mushroom Rituals, A Search for the Blood of Quetzalcoatl. Um, you can check us out at Mike and Maurice mindescape.com, uh, patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice. Uh, and you can find Tom's book on Amazon, which we will include the link below. Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing real fine. And, uh, the book's finally on Kindle now. I don't really want to plug my book a lot, but I spent over $10,000 on the graphics of it because I was sort of a nerd like Watson and making a really good book. Originally, I was only going to make five copies for my oh, three wow. sons and my uh, adopted Vietnamese daughter. But then one of my sons uh, talked me into uh, making the book available to the public, which uh, I released it about two, uh, let's see, last October, Sacred Mushroom Rituals, The Search for the Blood of Quetzalcoatl. And it finally came out on Kindle because the book was expensive <coughs> on Amazon, even though it has free shipping, uh, $58.50. But believe it or not, I don't make much money on, on the book. I make almost as much on Kindle, but it, it's very much diff very difficult to get a book like that with so many much artwork to go into Kindle and not ruin the artwork. Sure. Absolutely. And I was lucky I had a great graphic designer because it's hard to find one now that does books. Yeah, you mentioned that in your book, how you were only going to release it to your kids um, and that, you know, you mentioned in your book, like you just said, your son convinced you to release it to the public. Uh, I think that was a good call because I think that this book's super interesting um, and it kind of the thing I like about it, you know, as a reader, I, I just recently read it was the fact that you combine like history with famous quotes and visionaries with, um, you know, some of the doctors and scientists that are interested in this and all then also with the ritualistic side of it with Marina Sabina, uh, Maria Sabina and all that kind of stuff. So um, why don't you start with a little bit of how you got into the search for Quetzalcoatl and um, like what was the catalyst behind you going, you know, on this uh, journey quest? Well, I've been living on an Indian reservation in Northern California. I was uh, uh, being paid to be a forester for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And uh, I had a friend called Jack Bell who worked over in uh, Arcata. And I used to go over to see him some uh, because he was a nut on building geodesic domes. And that's all he could talk about was building geodesic domes. He was actually running a projector for an old movie house and he was living in this old sort of like commune sort of barn house out near the mad river and me being on the reservation you know about he had wanted to get a job on there but he didn't get it as a bus driver so anyway we, we got to be really good friends and he is a crazy story he had his girlfriend's friend, Catherine, I think was her name, had gone all over uh, 
Guatemala, all over Mexico, all over the place, learning how to do indigenous dye. She was a weaver. And she met this really rich woman who had gotten uh, a ton of divorce money down in the Berkeley area. And she was into weaving too and wanted to do art and everything. And she told this woman that Jack knew everything about building geodesic domes and how to build them and all this stuff. When in reality, Jack just had every book you could and he would talk your ear off on it. So naturally you would assume he had built them. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he went and met her and then they went to Mexico to Tapalpa, which is sort of like the Switzerland of uh, Mexico. It's south of Guadalajara and Suarez Guzman was nearby. In fact, when I was there, they still had cavalry and uh, on horses and everything in Suarez Guzman. And I drank at the bar a couple of times with the captain. And uh, but anyway, so he went down there. And about a month or two later, his girlfriend comes to see me and says, hey, I'll pay for half the gas if you want to go to Mexico to go down and see and take me to see Jack. And I said, OK, let's go. Let's go down there. And. Uh, so I ended up going down there with her and working on building geodesic domes in. Uh, this really isolated place where we had no power tools or anything. It's really neat at night here in the coyotes yell and everything. And but the interesting thing was we were doing everything uh without any power tools and leveling. We were actually using just a clear tube for leveling. And uh they decided they wanted to go to uh there were sort of two like hippie ha uh, what you call outlaw hall hole in the wall hangout places there where the federales didn't go back then one was called barry de navidad which is fairly near narit where the people that were interested in the wee choles would go and that's where we went and the other one was zipalite which was way down on the other end and they were sort of like totally isolated where you know you could be away from the federales and the police but I visited this old Catholic church there and I saw these uh, things that were being sold by the Catholic church that were for uh, help the Indians, you know, their artwork and stuff. Sure. And I got really intrigued by some of the artwork. It was just like zoomed. I zoomed right in on it. And I thought, I want to find out about this. And so I told Jack and his girlfriend that I was going to go on. And uh, I went to Mexico City for the museum there and I had the strangest, strangest experience of just seeing the things in the museum and felt feeling like I'd been there a long, long time before. And especially this one feeling of I was in front of a, with my back to a statue of Kolakik. I don't know if you know who that is. No, I'm not familiar. Well, she actually transformed herself into the Virgin of Guadalupe. If you look at the stars around the Virgin of Guadalupe. If you look at all her colors, even, you know what the color cyan is? It's almost like your shirt. Yeah, yeah. Okay, everything transformed. And you can find all sorts of stories about how she transformed. A lot of these ancient Aztec goddesses. Well, anyway, she was the goddess of birth. And my whole skin, my whole back started to crawl. All of a sudden, it was like 
and I have a picture of her in my book. I felt like a Jaguar or something was behind me. You know, I've been in the military and you have that sense yeah. from infantry training that there's somebody there and you better look around real slow because you make a sudden movement, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when I looked around and saw her, it was like, oh, it's just unbelievable. That experience. And that led me to go to Chichen Itza. And by circumstance at Chichen Itza, which I was amazed, I just happened to be going by the Great Pyramid. I don't know if you've ever heard it, Chichen Itza. If you go out in front of it and clap your hands, it'll make the sound of the Quetzal bird. If you go like that. Yeah. Or, and it, and they celebrate big things there. Well, when I was there, hardly anybody was there. So, in fact, I slept on the pyramid that night. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, there were so few. But anyway, I went by and there was this opening. And this guy said, hey, I'm going to take somebody up. You want to go see? And I said, well, see what? And he said, the Red Jaguar. And so I went all the way up to the top. And I told friends about it later. And I don't know if the guards or whoever did it once a day want to bribe or not, they want to charge somebody $300, which is ridiculous, but they don't even let you climb the steps now. I mean, these steps are really hard to climb. Right. Not, like, I mean, they're, but anyway, going up inside of this thing, I went up and I uh, saw the red Jaguar up there and it was like, I said, wow, that thing is alive. I said that it, when I, it was like my eyes, its eyes were watching me. So I decided to go to Palenque. I don't know if you know about Palenque. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was sort of like the uh, Vatican of the Mayans in the middle of the jungle. And at this time in Palenque, uh, this is where I had my first two sacred mushrooms. And it was like being inside of a generator. I don't know if you've ever been in triple canopy jungle. No. But no. I've been in triple canopy jungle and Suriname. I've been in triple canopy jungle in a couple of places in my life, but this was like a buzz, like you're in a generator, and especially when the sun's going down, it's blood red. And uh, there's amazing stories in my book about especially uh, the tomb they found it in Palenque that was actually built around the, per the person that I interpret as finding the sacred mushrooms to. Uh, the ancient Mayan king. But anyway, from that experience, I had met a couple of other gringos like myself, and we talked to some of what were called the yippies, you know, the uh, Me our Mexican yeah. friends. And they said, yeah, we'll sell you marijuana, which I wasn't interested in at the time. Not that I didn't smoke a lot. I smoked the entire time in the army. That's the only way I could stand it. And uh, the two years, you know. Well, anyway, so he said, yeah, these mushrooms are out there and they're sacred and they call them the San Isidro and there's these fields. And so I went out to look for with my friends and I couldn't find any. It's really weird. It's like the post out there. I'm telling you, this land is so living that a post in the ground would actually grow a tree out of it. I believe Literally, you could, you could take a post and drive in the ground and a tree would grow. I had an experience I write about in my book of uh, touching some of the plants in the moving, but one place I was near the fence and a vine wrapped itself around my arm and then and then undead. And so I couldn't find any mushrooms. I was sort of upset. I said, oh, well, 
they wasted. And later I went to uh, a city of Plake in a, in a little Zocalo when a little girl came up and offered me some. And she said, these mushrooms found you in this field. And I said, what do you mean they found me? And she said, yeah, they found you in the field. My sister said to give them to you. And I said, well, gracias, thanks a lot. I really appreciate them. And so I ate these mushrooms. And the explosion to me was like, realizing how many different ways there are to view life, you know, in other words, to, you know, to view what's going on in life, like 360 degrees. And it's almost like I could recognize everybody going through that circle was wearing a perfume. This is what they put on, their attitude toward life and that sort of thing. And it was really amazing. It opened up to me that there were so many different ways of, uh, same thing. And then her sister came along as a related in the story. She had learned Spanish from being a playmate for, I guess, anthropologists down there. And uh, she, she said she wanted to do a ceremony with me. She said she had seen the vine wrap itself around my arm. And she said, why didn't you say something? I was looking with two other guys. And I said, well, look, that was nothing to me. I, I'm, you know, I was a forester and uh, I was more amazed at how these trees were growing out of the ground. I said, the fact that a vine moved and wrapped itself meant nothing. You know, that was just a, more, a part of just seeing a, a living thing that was a post come out of the ground and you touch the little sensitive flowers and they move all over. And so later she said that night she wanted me to come to her house and we would do a ceremony. She had two kids, She were both of her parents were dead. And it, back then everything was really precious, like even a glass jar that, you know, that was really precious. You might sit down an empty jar and for an Indian or something, that was just something amazing. The whole stuff in herbs and stuff, you know, because mm -hmm. everything was made out of the earth. And so, she told me where I'd been looking in this cow field and where she had seen me in that. If I went to this sort of like, it was almost like a big Creek river that at night near the moon, you know, there was a place, there was a crossing and she would come down to meet me. And I thought, well, that's really nice. I didn't know what this is about, but I thought I'd do it. And my two friends had left for the coast. And so I'm going down there and I decided just to lay down in the stream because you're in that type of tropical climate, you are absolutely covered with sweat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you got to realize back then they didn't have any air conditioning, except for the tourists on the bus that a few of them were down there then. But even in a hotel at that time, if you stayed somewhere, they had hammocks to hang up. Nobody in their right mind would lay down on a mattress. I don't know if you've ever been in uh, the jungle before, but you just want to be in something swinging in the air, you know? Like yeah. when I go canoe the Okefenokee Swamp out up in Georgia, I don't, not because the alligators I'm up in the air, I just want to be cool, you know? Sure. So anyway, uh, I'm laying down there and getting all this washed out of me and it's really feeling nice. And she comes out of the clearing and we go up to her house. And as I talked about in the thing, we conducted a ceremony in her house, what she said her mother had taught her. And it was like then, it was like the full force of the mushroom was coming. It was, oh my goodness. I mean, the walls were moving. 
I was seeing all these Aztec figures, and I talk a lot about this in the book, and seeing the jaguar appear, and the red jaguar appear, the same one that was in Chichen Itza, and I saw all those motifs. And as I talk about later in my book, I've done this sacred ceremony with uh, Vietnamese Buddhist and with a Russian midget born in the 20s, who was a good friend of mine that lived on the Suwannee River. He had actually escaped during the Second World War, and they all see the same motifs. It's sort of like if you read about Albert Hoffman when he took the, the mushroom, mm -hmm. all of a sudden he sees these Aztec figures. Well, there's these people from this other world. This is not something out of your personal imagination like LSD. Uh, this is something from a different world that comes forward as a living embodiment of the earth itself. And I could feel that that night. And it was like, I understood what this is about. This is not about uh, anything but life coming out of death. And this is about a very ancient Toltec and ceremonies that go way back. And she said the next day she wanted me to go to a healing ceremony near a waterfall. That waterfall is called Misoha. Now, if you go on YouTube, you can see pictures of Misoha and pictures of it. And But at that time, there was no roads to it. It was way, way, way back in the jungle. And there were absolutely no roads whatsoever. And we were going way past farmland, way back in the jungle. I'm talking about there's howler monkeys back there. You understand what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. And they were surrounded in this waterfall. When I first came out to this waterfall, I had welts on my body. I mean, the size of silver dollar just all over. And Jeez. I was sweating so hard. I literally jumped in the water of this huge pool where this waterfall came. I didn't care. I wanted to cool off. And of course, it all went away. And she told me there would be a Mayan healing ceremony from these Indians from the jungle that weren't like the ones I saw in the city. And they would come in like two days. And she wanted me to observe behind the waterfall because she wanted me to be a part of the thing to gather this energy. and or something like that. I didn't know what all she was telling me, but she gave me a bunch of mushrooms and she said, wait till the second day when the sun's coming over the waterfall, I want you to take the mushrooms right before then. And she said, the waterfall fell huge into this monstrous pool of water. I mean, it was so deep, I no telling how deep it went. I got a picture of this. Are we allowed to pull this up, Mike? Yeah, if it's a picture, you're fine. All right. Um, I but I, I wanted to ask you too about the uh, the jaguar archetype because there's a lot of people I don't know if you're familiar with DMT or dimethyltryptamine. There's a lot of people that do ayahuasca ceremonies in the uh, Amazon that see the um, the jaguar, and also there's there's been videos of jaguars eating um, the same vines and, and plants that contain DMT. That looks like they're having some sort of a little. Uh, Hold on, just a second. Just a second. Well, this will give me a chance to pull this bad boy up. Look at this waterfall. That's be that's beautiful. 
Yeah, that's pretty insane, huh? I could see why they say take it right before the uh, sun goes over the waterfall. That'd be quite the experience. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, it depends on how much water's coming. And she told me to get behind the waterfall. But to take the mushrooms before. So you're looking through the water as it's falling? Yeah, I'm looking through there was a cliff back behind there. Okay. And we talked and everything. And she said, well, I'll be back in two days. These Mayan Indians, their family are going to come there for healing. And these weren't Indians that lived in the city. These were out of the jungle. I mean, when they came out, it was like, I can't even describe it to you, but they were, they were just a part of the jungle. Their clothing, everything was really different. And they had two children and a man and a woman. And it was an amazing thing to see. But in the two days waiting there, was an amazing experience too because I had to hang my hammock about 20 feet up in in these trees, mainly because there were ant hills that were some of them around that were 12 feet high. But the amazing thing at night and the jungle, there were fireflies going around as big as your thumb. I mean, the most amazing big fireflies I've ever seen in my life. And this was after I quit having fun singing to the the hallop. The howling, the howlers, the monkeys, you know. And uh, she had told me they'd just be amused by me. Well, anyway, at night, there would be ripples of lightning, almost like plasma lightning going through that jungle. It was amazing, like huge balls just flashing through the jungle, like at night with, with no sound, no crackle or anything. And, uh, it was amazing being up in the hammocks and hearing that much sound in the jungle at night because you're seeing it's almost like in Suriname where you think, well, there must be jaguars or ocelots below and there's bats flying around and there's owls flying around and there's snakes crawling all over. And boy, this is better than an amusement park. <laughs> but I was just enjoying the light show, you know, of the. It was amazing. I mean, it was like being in a generator. Sure. But at this time, I learned how to breathe. And so the humidity didn't bother me. So the day came and I went into the uh, water and I had a bunch of these mushrooms I'd kept and kept cool like in the water. And I ate these mushrooms and that's when I swam out. And I was swimming in the pool. I used to I swim every day, but I went out and this time I was going to go behind the rocks. And it was like that's when the red jaguar appeared out of the forest. It came down and started drinking water. And it was just amazing. It was drinking water right there. And then it left. And I was behind the waterfall. And right after that, um, this Mayan family came with their two children and she came out and they were to be healed. And later I figured it out because I started studying this 10, 20 years later, who some of these people, but it was the Aztec goddess Shelha, I think. She came right up out of the pool. And I recognize this because there were thousands of these blue butterflies that came from all around. And she was like the healing goddess. And somehow she came, she, I don't know if you've ever seen the Bolshai Ballet. No. 
Well, the main thing about the Russian ballerinas more than anybody else is how they can flutter their arms. They just flutter their arms like American ballerinas can't do with the Russian ballerinas to have more expression with their arms than the uh, Americans with their whole bodies. And it was like all this energy and everything was flowing from her into the waterfall, the water falling back to the Curandero, the young woman I was with, to these children and back into the water. It was like a huge, just incredible healing ceremony. And the main thing I remember about it, it was just an incredible veracity of this woman who I felt like there was just like pure birth, like, you know, children from the sun, that type of energy, the energy of birth raining down. Mm-hmm. And all this healing was going on. And, but the thing I remember about it more than anything else is right after she disappeared or she went back into the pool and the, and the, like the children were healed and everything, this tremendous amount of time that it took, it seemed like jewels and everything were just coming out of her like, but the amazing thing, right after she left, the most vicious, terrifying thunderstorm I'd ever seen in my life came up everywhere. And all of a sudden, it was like around this pool. Remember, it's a circular pool, right? Mm-hmm. Every raptor you could imagine came in there. Eagles, hawks. Wow. Uh, falcons. That's what uh, and they were circling at different like birds, you know, like at an airport. Right, right, right. And somehow the thermal currents from that waterfall or that experience had uh, caused the them to all congregate there. And then like the storm left and they all left and went back to where they're going. But it's amazing. There were I remind me of airplanes just parked at a certain level. I mean Falcons down low, and then you had the kestrel type of uh, birds, sort of like the hawks, and then you had the harrier hawks, like the swallowtail hawks, you know, with the forked tails. Right. And then higher up, like eagles and stuff like that, all each one at its own level, and all talking to each other. So just so people know, too, Quetzalcoatl uh, is an Aztec god that. you know, the name means uh, plumed feather serpent. So it's a combination of a, you know, a hawk or an eagle mixed with, you know, a serpent. Well, I'd basically. like to make a few corrections there. Okay, go ahead. Number one, Quetzalcoatl way predates the Aztecs. It really irritates the hell out of me because Quetzalcoatl was the first man king of the Toltecs. Mm-hmm. And he discovered the sacred mushrooms. And a lot of people that study Indian, uh, like the Buddha and everything, there were things called Nagas. I don't know if you've ever heard of Nagas. I know what Nagas are, yeah, like uh, lizard people, basically. Well, they're serpents that go between heaven and earth. Right. Well, anyway, Quetzalcoatl, you've got to realize, previous to him in Mesoamerica, People were really primitive. Now, what I mean by primitive people, they didn't have gods. They had sorcerers and witches, but they did not have gods. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay, so he made the first connection to saying, look, 
there's deity within humans and there's God which started at the beginning of time and nature and we're all connected in the sacred mushroom and Quetzalcoatl was actually the female Quetzal bird with the serpent male the female ascending and the male descending into the earth and it was a penis of this bird dual bird male female that blood fell from the penis to cause the sacred mushrooms tail not not a coddle to grow because it's a sacred uh, energy of the earth which has to do with death and rebirth and with the sexual energy of coming and going from the earth now quetzalcoatl you're, we're talking about a toltec man that became a king and after he died i believe his followers and most people believe gave this name to uh this experience and he became a legend there's a lot of stories about real people who were kings or whatever and after they died they became mythological figures do you follow what i'm saying oh absolutely yeah i mean we're big into like ancient egyptian culture and like similar stuff you know with gods and and uh, pharaohs and kings and that kind of stuff but i wanted to bring up too because a lot of people think i don't know if you're familiar with like graham hancock's work but uh that vera Kocha from the incan you know pre-columbian civilizations is actually the precursor to quetzalcoatl um but vera Kocha translates i think to foam of the sea uh, but he too left on a, a, a serpent, uh, you know, raft as well. Um, so I don't know if you, if you found any correlations to that. Or well, if that. I've, I've had a lot of uh, recent correspondence with people in the Colombian Mycological Association have been sending me and stuff. But here's the best of it I know: it Quetzalcoatl is a Toltec, predated the Aztecs by six hundred or nine hundred years. He created the first. Now, as you go south, it was the Mayans called him Kulakan. Mm -hmm. And there were different names, but he had three types of followers. One, his followers were in the Temple of Taloc, and most Aztec are gods or goddesses had either male or female priests, but he Taloc had both male and female to, to know about these sacred ceremonies of the deified heart. And long after the Toltecs were gone as a civilization, when the Aztecs, which were basically a desert warlike tribe without even a god before they arrived to Tilskan, they were ruled by witches, and they only had a god right before they got there, a war god. It would be like they come into Rome after everybody's gone, but a few people, you know, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they claimed it's all theirs. They claimed all the history, the statues, everything is belonging to them. Right. That they were their ancestors. Now, to go back, they allowed the people who the priest and priestess who didn't believe in human sacrifice, did not believe in warfare with tribes, because Quetzalcoatl taught two main things. He taught to end human sacrifice. He said that he stopped that with the Toltecs. Right. He also stopped the warfare with the other tribes and all this knowledge he was given when he built the city of God, Tiwa and all the jewelry and art and everything that he did 
the Toltecs were getting upset. Well, giving this away to everybody else and letting all these other tribes know. And he said, look, this knowledge is from God. This knowledge is not for any one person. It's for everybody. Well, anyway, he also had two other followers, the Jaguar and Eagle Knights. They were all called the Eagle Religious Knights. And they had sacred places. Now, under the Aztec, they had a temple called Malenko, which you can bring up. Malenko wasn't even found until 1938. Wow. It's where the sacred ceremony, the deified heart, where they were all called Eagle Knights. But it was carved out of the mountain. And it was the only place the conquistadors never, ever conquered. It was way in an isolated. They gave up trying to take it. And it's basically just a ceremonial center. As you carved out of the mountain, you enter the center through the mouth of the dragon. As you're going by, the initiate is riding. You can see him riding on Quetzalcoatl's back, uh, head with all the scales or mushrooms. And you go into the center where you take this. Now, the third type, and this is where I'm getting what you said of what Quetzalcoatl had. They were called the Pocatecas. Okay. And now these were the traveling merchants. And they traveled literally all over Central and South America, the northern part, teaching the sacred ceremony, the deified heart. And some of these others, like the disembodied eye that was at Tiwatiwakan, these sacred, but they, th there were two things they had to do. Number one, they had to believe in fair trade. They could not cheat or rip people off. They had to be honorable in how they did their trade, you know, whether they were trading for feathers or whatever. Mm -hmm. They had to be honest. And number two, when they got back to Tiwatiwakan, they had to live in a humble hut. They couldn't uh, exhibit their wealth or show a lot of wealth or, you know, let everybody know what they had, you know, brought back. But I think the Pocatecas were some of the ones who traveled and spread the story of the sacred mushroom because these mushrooms are all over Peru. Right. They're all over Colombia. And I have all sorts of people since I've written that my book and friends in Colombia and Peru are constantly, you know, they want to add a chapter or a story to my next book. And I said, that's fine. I said, you know, you guys co-author co it with me or whatever, but they're, they're presenting me all this evidence, you know, sure. a lot of it's just not even published. It's just single individuals out there just gathering all this information on their own because they're fanatics, you know? Absolutely. I mean, and, the reason why I was connecting Viracocha and Quetzalcoatl, because like I said, Graham Hancock does it in his book, um, uh, Magicians of the Gods and Fingerprints of the Gods. But the thing that Viracocha brought to the Incans um, or the Inca was the idea that you should not do sacrifice, you know, child sacrifice, human sacrifice. Uh, if you're going to worship anything, you worship flowers. Um, you know, it, it brought, he brought animal husbandry. He was supposedly like a, a fair skinned, you know, they were all obviously, um, had indian roots but he he was fair-skinned with like long hair almost like what you would picture jesus to look like based on catholicism and christianity um and that kind of stuff so that's why um you know i don't know how they describe quetzalcoatl if they if it's similar but it just seemed like the the traits and the characteristics um seem pretty similar well you know 
the Mormons think he was Jesus Christ later. Other people think he was St. Thomas. Other people think he was a monk from Ireland. Other people think he came from the East, maybe uh, somebody coming from China or that area. What about like a Viking or, because uh, like the Vikings were pretty prolific. Uh, well, you know, they have found some people from the area of the Ukraine in Peru that like to deny it. You know, here's a here's a crazy thing about this whole thing. You're familiar with the story of the Contiki, right? Yes. That's uh was it Thor Heyerdahl's research. Yeah, and he, yeah. he proved with ancient rafts he could he could go from anywhere in Asia right. and cross the ocean. Yeah, he went South from America. Yeah, he went from Easter Island um to or he went from uh, Peru, the edge of Peru, the coast to Easter Island on a raft to prove that because they found evidence that some of the DNA from like Easter Island, they had some, um, you know, South American uh, genes. Well, now and, you're, and, you're hitting, you're hitting, you're, you're really hitting of what this is now. They have actually found through DNA some people from the Caucasians in Peru. It makes okay. absolutely no sense. Huge heads and everything in this DNA that these guys are from the Caucasians. But I always thought it's absolutely absurd. Right. That the only people that made it down this story about, okay, they came across the, uh, the bridge, you know, that bridge. And then they yeah, came the, down. The bearing, and came down uh, South America. I mean, that's nuts. Yeah. The Bering land bridge, you mean up in, uh, connecting russia to alaska yeah and no doubt the columbian exchange what they call the columbian exchange was the greatest momentous event in the history of mankind not because of christopher columbus but what it started the columbian exchange from everything from venereal disease going back to europe right and people having to wear wigs to all sorts of diseases and actually if you looked how the aztecs were killed and conquered that war went on for three or four years and it was the diseases from Europe that were wiping them out. Mm -hmm. uh, all sorts of European diseases. A lot like our Native Americans in North America as well. The, uh, you know. Columbus coughed and killed half of them. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the thing, them. but people don't realize Columbus is, I'm not saying he was a nice guy, but you don't realize what the conquistadors that came with Cortez were. These weren't Spanish soldiers. Oh, yeah. Of the king's army. These were bloodthirsty mercenaries, soldiers of fortune. There were a lot of Greeks. There were a lot of Italians. There were a lot of Portuguese. There were a lot of Sp There was even a lot of blacks from Northern Africa and a lot of Moors from Northern Africa. And they were all there. And basically what they were told was they had a plan. You wipe these people out. And you'll get your own little kingdom there. Just make sure you send a bunch back to me. Yeah. And these were bloodthirsty people. When they landed in Cuba, it's unbelievable what they did. Everybody talks about their horses, you know. But the right. conquistadors also had huge mastodons like the Romans did with armor on them. Really? And the Cuban, the Cuban Indians were just friendly. They were not warlike like the Aztec. The Aztecs were incredibly warlike. And the conquistadors turn these mastodons just loose on them for fun. You mean like elephants or actual 
I'm sorry. I'm, I'm talking about the dog. Did I, it sounds <laughs> like I'm talking about El yeah. Mastiffs. Sure. I'm sorry, Mastiffs. Yeah, Mastiffs. No, because Mastodon. Yeah, Mastodon was a precursor. It was like a woolly mammoth, basically. Yeah, I, that, that's crazy. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. No, <laughs> you're fine. I just wanted to make sure. I just yeah. The, the, they actually put armor on these big dogs. Yeah, their Mastiffs are huge too. I've had a couple. Friends oh yeah, there, and they yeah. were trained to like attack. And. Um, but so see, really, the conquistadors were really when we talk about like Columbus. Yeah, they might have brought disease and did some bad stuff, but it was really the conquistadors that were really doing all the damage and all the uh, the the blood, you know, it, it, um, you know, the bloodlust and all that kind of stuff, and and burning the ancient texts and and you know destroying well, just, the culture. Just, just put put it this way: Let's say that Columbus came as normal people and sailors. Sure. We're missionaries. Okay, these guys come in the conquistadors. Let's just call them fuel crazed Nazi SS. Yeah. Wackos out for plunder. Okay. Sure. Barbarian men. Well, they were just out for plunder because they could told they could have land, they could have all this stuff, and they had a plot and they followed it all through Central America. First is land and get the locals to join you against whoever the rulers are then to get to his cat to his place and take him prisoner you know and then start your rebellion from inside out and see there was a reason the aztecs were hated by all the tribes now imagine a football game every tribe had to play mm -hmm. and this was called the flower warriors and the Aztecs required every single tribe to meet on this battlefield. And now this is going to sound terrible, but in this battle, the object was to take the other side alive, to take them as prisoners. And you were going to take them to this back as a captive. And there were referees and everything. Now, when you took this person back, they were going to have their heart torn out and their parents and their relatives were forced to come back with them and they were going to have to eat them that night in a banquet jesus now only the guy that that was the uh captor let's say he was the michael jordan i hate to besmirch any athlete but a great athlete they're, they're mickey mantle all right okay they were taking the captive back he didn't get to eat because he was considered the father but that but imagine every single tribe had to meet on a on a let's just call it a playing field sure and fight this battle and it was really dishonorable if you ran away or if you uh tried to retreat or go hide even your own tribe would take you back i mean this was very serious stuff so you can imagine all the tribes were fed up with the aztecs and their whole cult of death you know sure and feeding hearts to the sun but see they only existed for 325 years right and, and imagine like i said that washington dc or rome is almost totally abandoned just handfuls of people are there and then all of a sudden this tribe wanders out of the desert and claims everything's theirs and right. they actually destroyed a lot of the toltec books where they didn't like the teachings about peace and love and that sort of thing yeah, I mean, it's, 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 did you think that, um, they ever were the conquistadors? 
ever like hip to what they were doing with the mushrooms and, and did do you think they ever took them or changed some minds that way or do you think no was- no 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 see they were shocked here's the thing quetzalcoatl taught this people kept wanting to say a god or something show us a sign or make something to worship and he said god is everywhere i can't give you something to worship he's in the flowers he's everything he's life that springs forth he said well give us something so he made this cross and he made these crosses outstretched and he said let this represent pain and love and he says that's what god gave man is pain and love and you have to have joy and accept the pain because that causes movement so there were these crosses everywhere when they got there there's also baptismal fountains everywhere these were the most religious people ever on the planet even more so than i would say the tibetans if you really follow their customs but they immediately thought this is all satanic this is an this is right. a satanic cult and so some of the statues like the statues the stellas of sochamilico that were up in the high palaces was where the sacred mushroom ceremonies they broke them into three pieces painted them red and buried them that was their way of uh destroying it sure and like the books like the vienna vienna uh codex mushroom that's in vienna now they're all taken out some of this stuff survived but they tried to destroy everything they could because they were shocked i mean how could these people be practicing baptism they, they were very very much like what you'd consider uh christian practices sure well i've heard through more modern versions and this is probably wrong i mean it sounds like you've done a lot of research and have personal experience but um the way it's portrayed now is that the way that christ christianity saint peter san pedro that kind of stuff was brought it was the crusaders and the conquistadors and different people that brought these um, religious aspects to uh, these cultures and they you know out of persecution or just adopted them because they liked them or whatever that it was they they accepted it later on and and not kind of the opposite of what you're saying but it sounds like what you're saying makes a lot of sense so i was just curious why do you think that more modern explanations uh, uh, of why um these cultures accepted christianity and christ and, and certain religious figures um as part of their rituals well a lot of it just transformed in you've got to understand there there i'll talk to you later there is a way of having quetzalcoatl actually come there is a sacred ceremony to meet and become Quetzalcoatl. It's called the Sacred Ceremony of the Deified Heart. But before, but you got to remember before anything else, in these remote areas where I was, like Walt at the time, in the mountains, uh, were like in the Neanderthal times in the 70s. There was no electricity. Mm-hmm. This wasn't like Acapulco. There wasn't any uh, paved roads. Right. There wasn't any telephones or TVs or anything. These people didn't have medical clinics. They didn't have doctors. You got to realize the most oppressed people of all in Mexico were the Indians in the South were they were given nothing, but everything was taken from them, if you know what I mean. Sure. And they lived in the mountains. And just like the Huichol lived in the isolated Sierra Madres, the Aztecs and the Spanish didn't think well, they were worth messing with these people. Why this why go and all these energy and these people live like in Grand Canyon country, it's not worthwhile. You know what I mean? It's not worthwhile looting right. and raiding uh, people in the Grand Canyon type. That's what the Sierra Madres were like that. 
And the same thing, the isolated mountains of the uh, around San Jose to Pacifico, we just leave these people alone where the, the, the churches went in there. Mm-hmm. And naturally, when they started talking about, you know, you eat this flesh because the whole Catholic thing, which right. I'm a Catholic. Now, you're supposed to believe in transubstantiation. You're supposed to believe it turns into water and blood. Right. A miracle. And, and it's supposed to happen to you. But with the Indians, they were saying, yeah, this is what it is. <laughs> and if you read the first letter to Walson, Eunice Pike, she says, the Indians say where Christ's blood fell, these mushrooms grew. Well, the most amazing thing, if you look at the early churches that the Indians built for the Spanish friars and priests, they were amazed. They go in the churches and they look, oh my goodness, look at all the cherubs, look at all the angels, look at all these. They understand what we're talking about. Right. And the whole story of the plunging youth and the and what are called the clown children and the little cherubs and everything that are part of the whole sacred mushroom thing. And in Waltla now, it's really accepted uh, by the church. The use of sacred mushrooms because they were they were always put on the altar to be blessed. They would have li- little girls who were virgins typically pick them, and then put them on the altar and walk or they'd take them to somebody's home, and put them on an altar. And it was always a very religious experience. It was an experience for healing and other things. This was not a party mm-hmm. drug, you know, for a rave or something like that. Sure. This is not for your psyche just because you want to figure out that like pharmaceuticals today. This was for going into the ancient world. And that's what Maria Sabina was so incredible. She was that link between that mountain that represented Quetzalcoatl and the link back into time and that healing ability to like that she had, you know. But all this goes, this is very, very ancient, ancient sort of stuff. And I've had a lot of people tell me since I've got back, you know, from Mexico, like, and they're right in a lot of ways. All you need is love and empathy. These are like ancient rituals and ancient practices that don't belong in the in the world anymore. They belong back in a time, of like a prehistoric time, almost like you'd be talking about like the Jedi Knights or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, no, no, that's fascinating. So you, but you've done you had rituals with Maria Sabina while she was still alive. Yeah. What That's was where that? I met my wife. What was that like? Well, at first time I went to Walt, I didn't even know about Maria Sabina. And, uh, I met with a different curl Daryl. The second time when I went there, it was the place in that time, the army had posts to prevent anybody from going in. And there were federales in the town looking for anybody because they had sealed it off for about 10 years. So you either had to hide, like I hid in the back of a truck the first time in. Mm-hmm. It was like an old farm truck. The second time, I was with somebody who was like a government official that said we could be there in the town. But when I went to see her, I went that morning, real, real early. And it's way, way, way high up in the mountains. The town is called a Tetasia or something. It means the eagle. And she was at the very highest point. And so it took forever to get up in the morning. And half the time you're going through clouds and it might be raining or just in the middle of a cloud when it's raining. And finally, when we got to her house, 
and she agreed to do a ceremony through talking to her daughter Apollonia and her uh, grandson could translate into Spanish from Aztec. She didn't know Spanish. And the other three or four people I was with, they wanted to go, they were going to go back down and get blankets and everything and it because it was cold. And to me, it was like, hey, I'd arrived at the Vatican. I'm not leaving. And Shirley, who was with a mycologist uh, or with an ethnobotanist from uh, decided to stay with me. And so I stayed for that early morning all through the day with her. And it was just incredible. Like she and her daughter served us the cacao that day to get ready for the ceremony. And it was like she just had an incredible presence. Now you got to realize these are mud wall houses, right? Mm -hmm. Adobe with straw roofs, but there's no doors or windows like we think of them. They're just openings. And there'd be clouds coming through. And I remember one time a lightning bolt going in one window and out the other. Damn. And she just stood there with the calmest presence, like it was just an everyday thing. Of course, the chicken got real excited and, and started hopping around in the house, you know. But uh, sometimes when you see a great curandera, and she was even beyond that, a, a sabia, which is considered a person of wisdom. You know, curanderos or curanderos are considered uh, like healers, but she was considered a sabia, which is like a much higher level where you're given the wisdom, you're open to the book of creation. And uh, she had managed to keep all her children and all her grandchildren alive. And uh, she'd been a midwife, all these sort of things. But it's just her presence of being with her that day, you know, and just because not a whole lot of language. You've got to realize when you're with Indians like that, they don't talk a lot. You know, they, they hoe and do stuff. But she was just there that day in the house, you know, and I just want to feel the presence. But that night it was incredible, like in the ceremony. She gathered all of us around. And one of the most interesting things was she would get in front of each person and practice and practice and practice saying your name just so exactly like you said it. She would ask you to say your name mm. and she would say it. And by the fourth or fifth time when she said your name, you didn't know if you said it or she said it. <laughs> and she had a musical type of ability of tranquility, tranquility ventriloquy that later that night you'd hear your name in the ceremony and it would sound like it came from the wall or somewhere. Yeah, that's crazy. And of course she had us all gather in a circle. And one of the things she did was she rubbed tobacco leaves from the wrist, like up to here. Okay. As a pulse. that's to loosen the nightshades to loosen your etheric. And she rubbed that on as a poultice. Sometimes she'd rub it on people during the ceremony, but this time she rubbed it on before. And then she get, these were, uh, Solospoli Caruselans, uh, what they called, uh, the Durumbis. Okay. The landslide that grow in sugar cane. Yeah, I've never, I've seen them on TV a couple of times. I think one was 
one episode of Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, but I've never uh, experienced those. I mean, usually, you know, around here, you get cu- uh, Cubensis and, uh, you know, just your, you know, penis. Well, they had three types that grew there. Okay. They had the Cubensis, which was the least preferred. Right. They had the pajaritos, the little birds, were the Mexicana. Okay. And they also had the Carusalans, which tend to, which Maria Sabina liked the best. The main thing when in the ceremony at night, she made sure everybody in the circle got given banana leaves. And I think one person had an old newspaper for some reason. A really old one. And they were unfolded, everybody, but it was, she was very insistent that everybody take them at the same time. No hesitation. Take the mushrooms. And then she started her invocation. Were they dried or were they wet? Oh, they were all fresh living mushrooms. Okay. Interesting. They were all fresh. There wasn't anything dried. These had just been picked. See, the real season down there starts sort of, I think, in June and goes through September. And you're in the middle of a rainstorm half the time. I mean, I was, I love being in a cloud when the lightning is flashing and going back and forth. That's really the best place to take a mushroom, you know, being inside of a cloud in a lightning storm. <laughs> You'll meet sure. Kala, believe me. What uh, what was the characteristics of that specific psilocybe that you liked? Like what? Because I mean, I ever see, you know, there's different, you know, like for me, I personally, from my experiences, I actually like the penis envy ones because I'm a creative person and it brings out my creative side. But well, listen, I know there's... please give it a better name than that. I can't believe people want to sell me pot. They call it Gorilla Glue or something. I said, come on. Come <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Come on. Yeah, call I don't know. Goddess or the Green Goddess. I don't I even tell him, I said, don't bring me Glella Get Tell me it's a different name, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean. And, the whole- uh, but they're, they're really all the same. There's only one mushroom that's significantly, radically different than any of the others. And Alan Rockefeller is that expert on mushrooms. And here's what he educated me to. The Psilocybe Zapatocorum, which is what I took in the graveyards of St. Augustine La Cicca. Okay have a heavy, 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 much heavier concentration of psilocin than psilocybin. Okay? But in the sacred mushroom of the deified heart, it doesn't make any difference for one simple reason. It's all transformed into pure glucose and psilocin in your mouth, and it goes straight to your spine, it goes straight to your heart, and it goes straight to your brain. There's right. go to the stomach. That's another story, but we we were swallowing these mushrooms, right? Right. And then she starts the velada, and it's poetical, it's musical. Your body starts to resonate, and you can feel the earth resonating. And you're sitting on a straw mat on the earth, but you can feel the earth resonating, and you can feel that resonating coming up out of the mountain itself. And you could feel your whole body taking on that resonance. And it's like, are you ready at that time to ride, ride? You know, it's almost like her daughter was saying, okay, get on, let's ride, 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 you know? Mm-hmm. And then she started really going forward and it was musical. It was poetry. And like I was sitting next to my wife, Shirley and Shelly, and uh, it was like, we felt like we had met over through millions of years, or 
not of reincarnations like an ego or anything or just knowing each other for years and years and years and years we, we were actually married two weeks later still married now she's in the other room cooking supper nice. and uh but it was like it was the most amazing thing and the next morning what was really amazing maria sabina's daughter came up to me apollonia and to shirley and she said I, oh, she, my mother wants to give you these and i said what are they and she says they're the lightning of the mushroom they're the magic what they were that you know what slow roche is no well that's a proper name it's s-c-l-e-r-o-t-a it's like truffles and oh, okay. the troubles and she said my, my mother can see them growing under the ground she knows where to get them because she can actually see them growing under the earth because the lightning makes them glow and she said this will get you past the soldiers and get you out of here safely if you just have ha keep them on you you will travel past the guard post and it's the only thing i brought back to uh the states when i went back through the border you know the of course, the way I looked, they really searched me and everything. But the uh, mm -hmm. order gods looked right at it. This just looked like big walnuts. They were purple. All right. And I took them back to Tennessee with me. But her whole presence was like a presence of the earth. It was like uh, very religious, very uh, Catholic at the same time, very ancient, very nurturing, very feminine, very holy sort of like mother Teresa's type of thing but in a very quiet way uh, just dignity where did she you get it from what where did where did she get all that from like where was did she have a teacher did she like well, she where had, did she learn she all had this? three generations going back that were curanderas okay and her family and as a child she and her sister had a job of going out with sticks to guard the chickens from the hawks so even as a little girl she was going out with a stick to make sure the hawks didn't get the chickens and she would sometimes eat the mushrooms there in the field and that's the most amazing thing i really there's things that you if you eat the mushroom during the day like i did in saint augustine let's see you you'll see unbelievable things yeah you mentioned that in your book yeah, that's a big theme in your book that you mentioned about the difference between eating them during the daytime and the nighttime. Yeah. It's Why a do you celebration think of life and birth, rebirth during the day. And you can see plants and animatism and you can see the plants uh, talking to each other. And we would do sacred mushroom ceremonies where during the ceremony, we would have living families, you know, in bowls that were brought out of the woods in bowls you understand said right sitting we all be sitting around we'd be singing songs and they would start to dance now i don't mean like dance like across the floor but the stipes would be moving back and forth and going like that right and a couple of times where i was isolated somebody had come i brought somebody that they'd see that and they'd pass out it was too much for the reality we weren't on mushrooms but to see these mushrooms dancing and because just because we were singing to them they would literally pass out it was beyond their consciousness to realize that th there's all this living aspect of all this living world out there 
It's almost like and the slime one. from Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, in terms of uh, when you're do do they does she sing to the mushrooms before she picks them for the ceremony, or is it just something? Um, no, I was talking about the ceremony that I was doing that what that I was taught by Corandero before some of the sacred uh, ceremonies that I did. I learned around Santa Fe of singing to the mushrooms, singing to the families and being grateful, like right. And the first thing I was told was consider it food, like you know, like bread, you know, okay. that every day you have to find something to live. You know, there's no growth, you know. But with her, it was like the preparation on the altar to put them on the altar. And she was praying to the saints and especially to this one child God, the Nina de Atocha, which is the only saint that went from the new world back to the old, which people relate to the plunging youth. And the Nina de Atocha actually became a saint back in Spain, but it originated in Mexico. And a lot of people relate it to the sun prince. A lot of these things went back and forth like Kolakik. That definitely turned into the Virgin of Guadalupe. You know, and there was all these things because basically it's the message of love, the message of life, message of empathy. You know, that all corresponds to people who need it, you know, that are really in need of, of it, especially when you can heal the body through uh, the sacred mushroom because you're being healed by the power of the sheer power of life itself. And that's where that force comes from. And you just have to, it's not a belief. It's not faith. It's just, you know, it. you know, Quetzalcoatl's coming, you know, this energy's coming. You can let it envelop you. I was in a ceremony three or four weeks ago in the desert in Utah, where God been in a motorcycle accident and, we were doing this ceremony and like Quetzalcoatl came and swallowed him. It was just like he was going through his body, just like a rabbit going through a snake. And he came out healed. Now, do you, when you, when you do these rituals now, now like in modern times, do you still use that same um, strain of mushroom or do you just use whatever is kind of available at the time? The, ha the, the sacred ceremony, the deified heart has to be done. Absolutely. And I'll talk about this. There's a lot more to this. Okay. It has to be done with li living live mushrooms and families. Gotcha. And you fast for about a day and a half. And this is a very special ceremony where your intent, you have to intent, you want to meet and become Quetzalcoatl because he's going to come. And about two hours before the ceremony, to four hours before the ceremony, you take raw cacao. Not the stuff like in stores, but the beans. Right. And uh, there's two neural transmitters in there. And Quetzalcoatl, the legend was, gave them to his people as an aphrodisiac. Because one of them's in there that causes people, it, the chemical has a label of big P, big E, big A as a neurotransmitter when people are in love. You know, when you you're, you think your other is an angel and she thinks you're an angel. and Like oxytocin or something like that? It's it's some it's some uh something in cacao. It's I have one page in my book about it. If you read okay, about yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It well, I know you you give out the instructions in your book and what to do with the fasting and 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 all this stuff. I was just curious, um, 
nowadays in modern times if it's if it's easy to still do it the way that maria sabina and you know the ancients did it or if you have to kind of tailor it to modern times um that's i guess well there's some people that don't there's some people in uh, mexico like i'm associated with that we don't tailor it we we go back to ancient rituals we don't play around with any of this plastic neo uh woo woo stuff sure you know and to me this stuff is way more powerful than ayahuasca because it's like i described it this i've taken ayahuasca many times ayahuasca to me is like if i'm in a swamp up in the okifinoki swamp and i'm going down you know it's going to turn into the swanee river right right and there's all these alligators around my little my kayak well i can steer it to one side or another you understand what i'm saying sure Ayahuasca to me is like a dream world. You steer it to one side or another. You go see, you go learn, you go learn from another ayahuasca. The sacred mushroom, you get off on the bank. Right. You go up on the shore and you go to meet these gods and participate. You're not throwing up, you're not vomiting or any of that stuff. You know, you're not it's not a visual sort of TV thing. This is an active live. This is a serpent coming out of the earth. You know, it's coming out as a as as a pure love. And when Quetzalcoatl comes, the, the real story, why do you think he called it the plume serpent? Millions and millions of diamonds, all facets, all these rainbows coming out. They called it the rainbow jewel serpent. Mm-hmm. All these legends, all through South America, all through Mesoamerica. They were just making up a story. Why would they call it the rainbow? Because when Quetzalcoatl comes, he comes as millions of diamonds. Is this dragon that's about human height but they're shining rainbows out tremendous number of rainbow facets are coming out and that's when if you're in a great healing ceremony you could either step into him and the other people step in or you, or quetzalcoatl will come and swallow you and all this pure power is coming out of the earth the pure power of healing it's like my leg was just totally uh knee blown out from hiking the Appalachian Trail for 2,200 miles and my ankle and Quetzalcoatl, when I came back, it healed both of them. It's like, wow. you know, I used to have to step two steps at a time after hiking 2,200 miles and finally having my meniscus go. And now I, no problem whatsoever, but this is, this is life. This is the jeweled, plumed, rainbow serpent and it looks like exactly what it's described millions and millions and millions of diamonds all shining every color of the rainbow so you you made an you actually had an interesting point about the uh, ayahuasca and the difference between the trips i mean i've never experienced ayahuasca so i can't really speak to that aspect of it but in terms of what they actually you know ayahuasca you need um the dmt containing vines or plants or whatever and then you also need the maoi inhibitor with mushrooms it's kind of an all-in-one technology and psilocin is only one molecule away from dmt itself so there is a connection but what you know i think the difference is with this is like you're saying like you're eating this this live presence or this this fungus and it's it's kind of an all-in-one technology as opposed to an ayahuasca where there's multiple things going on there's preparation for it there's mental preparation i mean part of the preparation is for healing and as powerful as this is 
a lot of people are afraid or don't want to do the mushroom more than one or two times because it it takes you past the point of of fear and of death. Especially it'll show you where do you have anything to be afraid of? People usually have three ghosts they're afraid of. Their own mind, their death, or they're afraid of other people or something else. And the mushroom is going to mirror that, but it's also going to show you that if you that if you take your greatest fear, like I was one of these idiots that my current Daryl told me we probably have to do it. I went into a place that said, You'll you've been to heaven, now you're gonna you want to find out what hell is. And he, he meant like the underworld, where I was at a place where every leaf on a tree was a rattlesnake he had tried to bite me. And uh, the roots of trees were going to, rats wanting to eat me. And then that dawned on me. I couldn't get any worse than that. Mm-hmm. So then the thing that appeared from Quetzalcoatl, you have to love that. And when you feel love for it and you feel love for it, it all changes. It all goes back. It all changes back. And that's what you have to do. And then, then the power comes in the sheer power of Quetzalcoatl comes forward, which is a healing power of life itself, life coming out of death. And that's what the healing power comes from the sacred mushrooms. If you take them with that knowledge and intent that you're going to be healed. Why do you think modern, um, our modern society is finally kind of just catching up to this? I mean, obviously they're missing the, shamanic or curandero candera aspect of of these things because they're just legalizing them now and people are just going to be taking them i mean if if i'm being honest in high school we were just taking them just you know i was i was more interested in the the mystery of it i guess or the um that was like the allure is like what else is there what more to life is there you know like when we were in high school like that was the thing that drew me in um but i didn't have that full respect and then um, I don't know if you've seen any of our other podcasts, but I actually had severe OCD, depression, anxiety, um, and uh, I had strayed away from you know mushrooms and THC and stuff for a few years. Um, and I tried all the medical, you know, the pills, the you know, from you know, basically big pharma and CBD therapy and all that, and none of it worked. Um, and then. As like a last straw, one of my buddies had, you know, some mushrooms and I ate probably, I think it was like 4.5 or something like that of dried um, cubensis and it kind of reset my mind and it was allowed me to look at what was going on and allowed me to kind of break the loop um, that I, that I was in. So I had like some personal introspection uh, mixed, you know, there was healing going on, but I think the important thing here with, especially with your book is it's taken to a whole nother level with these rituals and with these ceremonies and the discipline of the fasting and the different things that lead up to the actual ritual. It's not just taking some mushrooms and experiencing something greater. It's, there's a whole thing, you know, that encompasses it. So why do you think? Well, the main thing I don't, I don't want to make it sound like, I'm a guru or this is something mystical. The main thing is this, that you have reverence for something that is sacred. Mm -hmm. You don't worship the mushrooms. You hold them because they're sacred. They're, they're a sacrament. And 
there's not like there's a church. The church is in nature. The church is the world of the living world outside. There, and and what's written is written. They can't scribe when the serpent, you know, comes. But the the thing of it is that what I try to explain in the first 280 pages, what I call to the normies, mm-hmm. the people mm-hmm. that aren't and to go that extra, is that involves three things the sacred triangle it involves your mind which is your unconscious and your subconscious or conscious mind and your body what you understand is your body is is intelligent and it wants well and if you just breathe very deep and stop it at different places up on your spine. I'm not talking about holding your breath. Breath as the spirit. That breath, you know, the Hebrew God Yahweh meant breath, and only the rabbi was allowed to say it. Just like the Wicho, only their shaman allowed to say the name of their God. But breath itself is the spirit, okay? Everybody unconscious mind. It goes back to their DNA, their epi, epigenetic DNA, and all the archetypes. And then you also come out with all that stuff, you know, from when you're born to where you are right, you know, took those pills or wherever, whatever you did. You know, you get to that point. Well, I often have people tell me, and it's almost like a revelation to them. I, I tell them, but your thoughts aren't yours. Just go bad thoughts quit thinking them think of good your right. breath let your body well being your body wants to be healed form the sacred triangle your spiritual breath is at the top let it move up and down your spine and your conscious your subconscious and your body are all talking to you tune into good channels tune into uh thoughts of gratitude uh Get rid of all this baggage in your body. I've seen people just poo vomit stuff out sometimes on their mushroom velada sometimes they're purging because they're putting all this stuff into their body. Sure. And it's like, you know, and so they're getting rid of it. And uh, you don't have to think any of the thoughts are yours. It's just a channel. You know what I mean? You've been listening to a certain type of music, changing something better. Right. Something that is life-giving. Just what you were cutting out too when you were describing from your book the triangle. So uh, the triangle is your subconscious, your body, and your conscious mind. Sorry, you were breaking up. I just wanted to all make sure three, people- right? You know, and I thought in my book about my friend that there's three le- there's four levels of like consciousness. The conscious, like one is waking sleep. Uh, when you're in absorption, you uh, dial in somebody's phone number on the microwave. You know, you write, have a lawnmower and you go over the flower bed. And and that's a type of absorption that you above, uh, go above. And then you have a type of attention, like if a drill saw you attention or the boat and it's sinking, you're called to attention, right? Right. It's like the difference between you're repairing a car if you have a flat, and if you really have a flat, you get the book out, you're 
attention then then it's imperative just thumbing through your book right on how that flat out sure, sure. in fourth level which athletes try to get to call awareness in the moment where time doesn't exist you're beyond time that's when you, if you're doing something the time goes by and you think what an hours have gone I just don't even know it you're uh you're, you're playing in the mountains and my mother used to where you been i've been out playing in the stream <laughs> oh yeah you're uh just so you know your connection's cutting up a little bit but let's we were going to do two parts of this anyway so let's cut it off here um and then we'll do another uh part for everybody here in a few days but you're breaking up a little and i just want to make sure because you're saying some really important stuff and i want to make sure uh people hear it so let's cut this off for today and we'll do part two here uh shortly i really appreciate you coming on this is super yeah, fascinating you, um you've obviously had a ton of personal experience and you've done a lot of research and you're very insightful and you bring a whole different uh mindset to this you know the whole psychedelic and ritual you know the sacred mushroom and that kind of stuff so um everybody go on to uh, amazon either buy his hardcover book or the kindle version uh sacred mushroom rituals uh search for uh the blood of quetzalcoatl um and uh tom lane thank you very much and we're going to put the link to his book below in the information as well well thank you because the main thing to me is that i see this world coming where you know you're going to have all these professionals in academia and they're going to tell you how to take the mm -hmm. some pill laying on a couch you know right yeah. they already do it with mdma and ketamine right now with the yeah and like michael pollan's blessing it's he did a wonderful book and i'm glad he attracts all what i call the blue pill normies and uh <laughs> you know but he but it's nothing spiritual in that book even you know he'll say you know I, i'm it's uh he doesn't see the spiritual side of this and and uh once you take the mushroom in the wilderness you will see the spiritual side yeah I mean, I I personally, I mean, I've never done one of these ceremonies. I'd actually love to try it sometime. Uh, maybe I'll make a, a quest for myself one day here and get down to uh, Mexico or South America. But um, I have experienced. You need take, to go to the wilderness. You don't need to go I've, anywhere I've done, but in the I, wilderness. Yeah, I've done 10, 10 grams dried in the forest before, and trees were talking to me, and it was it was very it was very spiritual and and um, definitely opened my mind to a lot of stuff so and that's kind of why we do this podcast is because i believe in a metaphysical or you know more than meets the eye kind of a thing and uh that's kind of what we're all about and that's why i resonated with your book because it's not just explaining you know the the serotonin receptors or different stuff i like to take both sides of it i like the scientific aspect but i like to marry it to the more philosophical and ancient side of it because i think they're both important so the only place where I really get in my book, and I'll hang up after this about what I'd say the really scientific, is when I explain in the ceremony of the deified heart exactly how the, all the psilocybin has changed to psilocin, mm -hmm. and it goes directly to the heart and the brain and the spine without going through the stomach directly in the blood system. And that's all very scientific. And when I, after doing this ceremony for so long, I started researching a lot medically to make sure I was right and use the right terms there, you know, cause you can make or say one little thing wrong in today's world. Oh, they'll and, jump uh, all over you. Oh, they'll jump all over you.
Yeah. Just like the mastodons. <laughs> the <dogs. laughs> uh, there's probably a ton of people now. I've got that all over the web that I said that they, they were uh, using mastodons. <laughs> no, they're gonna they're gonna say, man, this guy was really deep in it. He was actually experiencing dinosaurs. That's how. That's what. Right. Uh, no, but suit. Like I said, super fascinating. Thank you for coming on. We'll we'll do a part two here because we didn't even get to a bunch of stuff in your book Probably that I wanted to talk surface. about. Yeah, there's just so much you can talk about, and and I think that. Um, that's a, a nod to you with your wealth of information. And obviously you've talked to a lot of people and like I said, had personal experiences. So that that's also helpful when you write a book, you know, so thanks for coming on and uh, we'll do this again. And um, thank you. Cheers. Well, thank you. I, I, I enjoy being able to spread to Japan at 72. It's not, I'm not interested in anything other than the real message about the healing powers of the mushroom getting out. That's all I care about. And, and that's a, a great message that we all need, I think, in this world today. So, all right, Tom. Well, thank, thank you, very you. Much. Thank both of you. for. I'm grateful for you guys uh, helping spread this little bit of message. Oh, no yeah. problem. It's Thanks our pleasure. Thanks for being a part of it, my man. Yeah. Thank you. Bye.